hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. You know, it's been a long time since I've had the music segment on my show. I received a wonderful email from listener Gina. And Gina, I wanted to play this for you. You know what song it is. It is by Oliver Anthony, Rich Men North of Richmond. Uh, I'll put the link for the YouTube in the show notes. Um, But this is really number one on the charts. Let's listen and try to understand why it has such popularity. I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for bullshit pay so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me. Just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men, north or rich men, Lord knows it all. Just wanna have total control. Wanna know what you think. Just miners on an island somewhere Lord, we got folks in the street Ain't got nothing to eat And the whole beast milking welfare God, if you're five foot three And you're 300 pounds Taxes ought not to pay For your bags of fudge rounds Young men are putting themselves Six feet in the ground Cause all this damn country does Is keep on kicking them down Lord, it's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me, people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Oh, it is living in the new world with an old soul. These rich men know the rich men.
That's Richmond, north of Richmond. And you can probably see why Gina sent that in. It really gives a message. What city is north of Richmond? It's Washington, D.C. And we see a giant power grab going on in America. Like so many places all over the world is in a political upheaval, a social upheaval, everything running together from uh, pandemic response and crises uh, in the schools, indoctrination, hypersexualization, transgender agenda, uh, a war in Iraq that doesn't look like a war, have any war reporting, a border crisis with no follow-up on what happens when people come in the country. There's so many things going on right now in the United States that no one really can explain. The media is not giving us a report on what in the world is going on. So many people think they're working for bullshit pay and want to know what direction America is going in. I know I have so many Canadian listeners and those across Europe, South America, uh, Africa, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. Everybody wants to know where in the world are we going? Well, let me tell you, this show today is going to be more of a medical show uh, because I know a lot of you are suffering with what's called post-acute sequelae. That is the consequences of having COVID multiple times with the vaccines. And I take up the issue of these painful, what's called cervical cranial syndromes or pain in the neck and head, headache, uh, not feeling well, brain fog, pain in the uh, arm. And I brought under the show Robert Groisman, who I think you'll really like. He's a local physician here in Dales-Fort Worth, but he's really innovative, he's honest, he's really organized in terms of defining the various syndromes. And what he does is a particular procedure under ultrasound, it's very safe, it's called the stellate ganglion block. He'll describe it, it can be done in the office. So those of you who have friends and family or yourself suffering with various force, uh, forms of cervical or cranial painful syndromes after COVID-19 vaccination or with COVID, you may wanna take a look at this and mention this to your doctors and others uh, in your circle, it may help you. Well, let's move on to the show. And thank you so much for joining us. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report and I'm Dr. McCullough. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host for America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, and Courageous Discourse I'm broadcasting from my office in McKinney, Texas at McCullough Foundation, recently initiated 501c3 Foundation to support uh, so many uh, of the efforts that I'm doing. 
And I'm connecting across the DFW Metroplex today with Dr. Robert Groisman, who's double boarded in anesthesiology and pain management. And he's in Las Colinas, Texas. He is going to give us, uh, I think, a pretty thorough update on the challenges that we're seeing in medicine today, post-COVID, post-vaccines, chronic pain, and so much more. Dr. Grossman, thank you for joining the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse. Thank you so much, Dr. McCullough, uh, for having me on. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Where'd you grow up and go to college, medical school, and training? Uh, sure. Uh, so I'm an East Coaster. Um, I lived in New Jersey and New York mm -hmm. and uh, trained uh, at Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and University Hospital. Now it's called Rutgers. Yes. Uh, Robert Wood Johnson um, Medical Medical School and University Hospital. Okay. Um, so I, I spent a good part of my um, childhood on the East Coast. And uh, luckily made my way over to Texas in 2008. Um, never looked back uh, since. <laughs> don't uh, don't miss those uh, Jersey Shore days, huh? Ah, uh, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Look, if 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 you're gonna press me, uh, the things I miss are good pizza uh. and, uh, and good bagels. There's something about the water. Um, yeah. in New Jersey and New York area that makes the dough mm -hmm. uh, just the right consistency. Oh, that's so true. And so pizza, bagels, bagels and cream cheese, Philly cheesesteaks. How about those Coney Island hot dogs? I mean, oh, guys, yeah. Yeah, I haven't had one of those in a long time. <laughs> and uh, tell us a bit about your practice in Las Colinas. So uh, I'm an interventional pain management specialist. Mm -hmm. And um, how I got into long COVID in general is um, I was treating patients for PTSD with a stellar ganglion block. Mm. Uh, and now, Can um, you explain that to sure. a lay audience? What's a stellate ganglion block? So a stellar ganglion block is uh, numbing a relay in the, in the neck, on the front part of the neck. Mm -hmm. And this relay controls the fight or flight response communication between the brain and the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So uh, for PTSD in particular, uh, there's an area of the brain that's on the side where you store your memory. It's called the amygdala mm -hmm. in the temporal region of the brain. And that's where traumatic memories get stored. And it's a constant loop that keeps activating uh, the sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight response. So um, this block allows uh, for a reset of the system by stopping the positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And um, we just happened to find that it also helped with smell and taste. Now, this was even kind of before uh, long COVID was a thing or long haulers was a thing. Uh, we didn't quite make the connection yet uh, because nobody knew about it. Mm. Uh, but it helped somebody with smell or taste, smell and taste. Now, now how no is smell. the how is the block actually physically done? Is it done with a surgery or a needle, or how is it done? So it's that? minimally invasive. There's no mm -hmm. cuts made. Mm -hmm. um, we find the uh, well, I find the area, the stellar ganglia uh, on ultrasound. Okay. And guide a needle safely from the skin to where the medication needs to go, and you need to watch out for. Um, kind of important uh, structures such as the carotid, the internal jugular vein, the mm -hmm. vertebral artery, um, 
thyroid is there as well, your brachial plexus, and uh, if you're especially on the left side, um, the esophagus. Mm -hmm. So the stellate ganglion is an important nerve center. And then what do you inject uh, in it or around it? It's just local anesthetic. There's mm -hmm. no steroid or any, any other medications. It's just uh, plain local anesthetic, uh, such as lidocaine or, and rapivacaine. Okay. And then how long does it last? So what's interesting about the stellar ganglion block is unlike uh, any other kind of block that you would do for, say, pain relief or analgesia mm -hmm. or for surgery, uh, the block lasts longer than the duration of the block. The effects of the block last longer. Hmm. So um, it could be weeks, it could be months, and it can be years just from one block. Is, is that uh, because of a, it impacts a feedback loop and stops the loop from... That's the thinking that uh, it in, by interrupting that loop, you allow the system to reset. It can't mm -hmm. reset on its own. It's kind of stuck in a re repetitive loop. Wow. And until you stop the cycle, it, um, it continues nonstop. Wow. And it's something you can do in the office then, huh? Yes, you can do this in the office. Uh, you don't need any sedation. It's uh, very well tolerated by the majority of people. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do. Wow. So I'm uh, sure it's very skill dependent, right? So you go to somebody. It is. It is, it is very skill dependent. Uh, right. Thousands are uh, at this point. Wow. Uh, and what's um, what's interesting is, is that, um, for instance, for things like smell and taste, mm -hmm. uh, the effects can be seen as early as 30 seconds after the block. Really? So wh wh why that's interesting, I'm talking about anosmia going away um, or dysgeusia parosmia, completely mm -hmm. reversing or partially reversing. What, what's interesting about that is it kind of points to it not being a structural problem because structural problems wouldn't resolve 30 seconds after, after right. an action. Right. Um, uh, so we, we found it helps with brain fog with insomnia, with anxiety, with depression, uh, very similar symptoms to PTSD and POTS and chronic fatigue syndrome. So they, they kind of all melt together with their symptoms. Do you think POTS gets better with this approach as well? A lot of people, it does, mm -hmm. uh, but not everybody. Wow. And, and now are there some publications in the literature to support this? In, uh, yes. I'm sure before COVID, there must have been a lot of papers on this, right? Uh, uh, there's been a lot more papers for PTSD. Now, mm -hmm. this is not a new block. This has been around since the 1930s. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, it was done by, by feeling um, for, for a landmark and uh, driving a needle straight down through the thyroid usually um, until you hit bone, and then you pull back a little bit and inject it. But... Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the 50s and 60s, um, x-rays were used. And mm -hmm. uh, now we moved on to ultrasound because it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot safer. Sure. Okay. Um, but uh, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uh, publications on pain management mm -hmm. for this block, uh, one, one of the big ones that's used is called CRPS or CRIPS, um, mm -hmm. Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Yeah. There's a one and two. It's usually a neurologic injury, and it leads to manifestations caused by the sympathetic nervous system. Um, so things like um, uh, post-amputation pain, 
uh, would be addressed by something like this. And um, in the 90s, uh, it was linked to help with PTSD. Mm -hmm. And there's several publications for that as well. There's actually quite a few. And uh, recently, since 2020, 2021, mm -hmm. there's been publications regarding uh, long COVID and long haulers. Wow, this is fantastic. So this is a, a breakthrough. You know, we're trying different drugs and it's very difficult to get drug combinations that give people uh, relief. And so it sounds like this is a big uh, step forward. Now, you've also uh, taken on some of the broader issues of treating COVID and vaccine injury syndromes with prescription medicines too. Is that right? I have. Um, just to just to kind of go back for a second, I, I believe that a lot of this is from dysautonomia. Mm -hmm. um, so one way to address it is, is obviously with a stellar ganglion block, blocking mm -hmm. the sympathetic side. But another is uh, to work on the parasympathetic and work mm -hmm. on the vagus. Um, and improving vagus function, improving parasympathetic function um, can also help with a lot of the symptoms. But yes, I have... Um, I have embraced um, a lot of the literature out there, including your work, including um, the FLCCC protocol um, and anything that I've, I've seen that really has some evidence behind it mm -hmm. uh, to help. Okay. That's terrific. Now, what um, if we have a patient, let's move into POTS or posterior orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Patients get this uncomfortable heart pounding at the wrong time. Uh, some fluctuations in blood pressure. Um, what do you find drug-wise that has been helpful when you prescribe medicines? It's probably been very similar to, to your practice, mm -hmm. um, but I would, I would start with um, saline infusions first. Wow, okay. Um, and see if, uh, if their symptoms get better or improve. And the same, the same things that you likely do as well with compression garments, mm -hmm. um, with uh, medications that help retain salt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I've fallen into, this is a little bit different in my view uh, compared to neurogenic orthostatic hypotension, like what mm -hmm. we'll see with Parkinson's disease or what's called Scheidrager uh, disease or, or Bradbury-Eggleston and uh, that with this uh, a POTS that develops after the vaccine or with COVID or both, I've tried uh, just some beta blockers, anything from short-acting metoprolol, uh, short-acting propranolol, metoprolol, atenolol, and I have not found they've worked. Matter of fact, yeah, I think same. people, yeah, same, <laughs> right? So, but I have actually found that twice a day natalol, which mm. is a, a beta very blocker. Short, very short-acting. Very short-acting, and it has some, what's called intrinsic sympathomimetic activity. So it allows some sympathetic gating uh, to happen. And it's not just a pure blocker of the adrenergic receptors. For some reason, it seems to hit the sweet spot and get people to start cycling. And I think most of it is feedbacking. Again, it makes a sense that a block, a ganglion block will work because most of it's feedback. And then for instance, once the C fibers at the base of the heart are stimulated, by the adrenergic system and you get your heart heart is pounding, that actually activates the reticular activating system. And then there's more catecholamines right. and it becomes a vicious cycle, right? So patients right. will say, gosh, you know, I can feel my heart pounding at night and I can't get to sleep. And 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 so I found that natalol 
typically 20 milligrams twice a day, sometimes 10 or 40 twice a day. Uh, and keep in mind for blood pressure lowering, we usually use 80 milligrams a day and it's not a common beta blocker for hypertension. So 20 twice a day is fine. And then, uh, you know, of interest, I've found that a lot of patients with POTS also have some chest discomfort, what I call pleuridinia. It's not clear-cut pericarditis or pleuritis, but their chest is sometimes bothers them. So I just empirically treat them for a, a chest kind of wall inflammation syndrome with colchicine, which mm-hmm. is what we use in myopericarditis. And so natalol and colchicine have been a godsend for us yeah. in our practice. So I, we figured as a cardiologist, you would be um, very familiar with colchicine. Right. So, so uh, and not colchicine twice a day where we get GI uh, distress, but just once a day. And uh, we found that combination to be a godsend. And then we actually try to do things to fundamentally handle the spike protein. And, and so what have you kind of uh, empirically tried there, if anything? Yeah. Okay. So I've tried a couple of different things. Um, one is natokinase um, okay. with NAC. Okay. Um, and I found that um, the nicotine can help as well. Oh, really? Um, there's, there's one study which I can uh, send you. Mm-hmm. Um, that I mean, nicotine, some... nicotine gum or? Um, I tend to use patches because it's more of a steady state. Okay. Um, it's less likely to cause issues with dependence mm-hmm. uh, versus gum, which is more like a cigarette or vaping where you get a huge bolus of medication and then okay. uh, it declines. Um, with a patch, it's slow rise, plateau, and then stays plateaued for a very long time and then decreases again. Okay. Um, so um, those, those two, I think, um, have been relatively successful. Mm-hmm. Um, has the, ha, have you found, um, definitive proof that the spike is, is still circulating or? Yeah, there's now two Bruce Patterson at NCL DX has two papers and actually they've made it to the through PubMed now where after this severe infection, he found the S1 segment of the spike protein inside CD16 monocytes at 15 months. And after the vaccinated, he's found the full length spike protein, the S1 and the S2 segment, again, inside monocytes. And in that study, it was out to about nine months. Uh, But I've I've talked to Bruce, actually, I've had him on this show. And he says, as far as he can tell, it's as long as he can look, he's seen the spike protein. And then uh, I was impressed by this paper by Lee and colleagues. It's up on my Substack. Uh, About 750,000 vaccinated people from 2021. They just got two shots. Right. This is about double that size of unvaccinated. And the vaccinated uh, had about a fourfold increased risk of microthrombi in the retinal arteries and retinal veins. Now, it wasn't in everybody. The the number, as I recall, absolute numbers were maybe like, you know, two to three percent versus less than one percent. But it still was was worrisome. And um, so I guess the implications of the Lee paper is if people took two shots, they're still not completely normal two years later. Yeah, I've seen some of that in my clinic as well. I've uh, I've read a lot of the papers with the vaccination issues. Um, it is uh, disturbing. It is, and so, so so one of the things we've um, grappled with and have a paper. It looks like it's now fully accepted. Uh, come out in a major journal 
is what we call base spike detox. So BSD is what we're saying. And for lack okay. of a better, sometimes I learned this with the early treatment papers. Sometimes you just have to make a call and say, listen, this is what we're going with in clinical practice because these patients keep coming in and we need some approach, right? So the base spike detox is going to be this. Natokinase, 2,000 fibrinolytic yeah. units or 100 milligrams twice a day. Now, remember, natokinase has been safety tested up to 80,000 units a day. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very comfortable with natokinase. Yeah, yeah so very... The next one is, is actually another anticoagulant, and that is bromelain. Bromelain, 500 milligrams a day. Now, that's a family of proteolytic enzymes that comes from pineapple Pineapple, stems. right. And remember, bromelain in 2022 was FDA approved at the 35% um, solution for uh, debriding eschars from third-degree wounds. So it's actually, it, it, it's actually a medicinal product um, used topically. Uh, it's been available orally for decades now as a capsule, and uh, it's been safety tested up to 1,200 milligrams a day. We're yeah, just imposing 500 milligrams a day. However, at 500 milligrams a day, it does prolong the PT and PTT. So, so bromelain is an over-the-counter anticoagulant like natokinase. So it's two anticoagulants. And then the third is actually curcumin derived from yes. turmeric. The problem with curcumin, regular curcumin, it has doesn't less absorb than, well, right? Right. So it's available in nano form and in liposomal form, uh, and or it can be combined with, I believe, pyrazine, which markedly increases the absorption. But we want to get about 500 milligrams of curcumin uh, twice a day. And in our paper, we reference all the science and the literature on this. And believe it or not, curcumin now is to the point where there's randomized trials. There's been a randomized trial in people who have taken the vaccine and have COVID and have some kind of prolonged post-acute exposure symptoms. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least in that study, uh, the laboratories improve. CR, uh, C-reactor protein goes down, cytokines go down, people you know feel better. So that triple combination, we've just saying, listen, patients can get it over the counter. Yes. It does have some safety warnings to it. It's just for adults not children, not lactating women or women of childbearing potential. And, you know, the caveats are bleeding. Uh, so easy bruising, uh, nasal mucosal bleeding from, uh, you know, nosebleeds or brushing your teeth. And then if there's a soy allergy, you can almost expect uh, uh, there's micro amounts of soy in nanokinase that they'll be allergic. So, but these are three things that are pretty, as the supplement goes, they're pretty strong and they have medicinal properties but it's something patients can do themselves to get a head start on this. And then people have said, well, you know, their favorite uh, supplement is N-acetylcysteine or, um, you know, milk thistle. We say, listen, if you want to add things to it, fine. Some say, well, I'm going to give ivermectin for six weeks. Fine. Or hydroxychloroquine. But we need a base. We need a base yes. that has some anticoagulant properties. My practice is overloaded with blood clots every day. I'm seeing uh, blood clots of all different types. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. 
Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The wellness company is offering the Signature Series Spike Support Formula. The wellness company supports this formula because it's designed to remove spike protein from the body in its design, in terms of its mechanism of action. The accumulation of spike protein occurs because of repeated COVID-19 vaccination and COVID-19 illness. The spike protein stays in the body a long time, causes heart, brain, body tissue damage, as well as blood clotting. The spike support formula is designed to help the body catabolize the spike protein, begin to remove it through its natural mechanisms. It includes natokinase, the principal ingredient, 2,000 fibrinolytic units or 100 milligrams. Those are uh, equal in terms of uh, conversion. Selenium, 75 micrograms. Black sativa extract, 500 milligrams. Irish sea moss powder, 500 milligrams. Green tea extract, 150 milligrams. And dandelion extract, 50 milligrams. Why the other ingredients? The other ingredients are designed to help block the spike protein's effect on tissues, help tissues recover and repair. It's the best we have now when patients are in need. At this point in time, we can't make broad therapeutic claims regarding disease states, but we can tell you that this is reasonable in terms of supporting the body and helping the body clear spike protein and allowing your pathway back to better health. So go to twc.health and check out the spike support formula. You can use our promotional codes or go through our banner bars on our site to get promotional codes and discounts on your purchase. Every day I'm seeing uh, blood clots of all different types. Are you seeing mostly micro or are you seeing um, like things like DVTs or PEs? Mixed mixed and um you know it's been my experience that we go with the base detox and we've got several months now of doing this and people do get better after about three months i'm convinced of it and it fits with the literature we add on to different syndromes so for instance if a patient has a vasculitic syndrome mm-hmm. uh, uh, a multi-system inflammatory picture arthritis and they're ana positive so they've mm-hmm. turned blood testing hydroxychloroquine works great if you've they had have success this, with that what's that you've had success with it yes when they're ana positive only got it okay when they have this pots pleuridinia syndrome we use we add the natokinase and the colchicine and we have success there there are some patients who we think actually have prolonged covid where they have residual symptoms there'll be some adenopathy uh, uh, it's just it, chronic. It becomes it, a chronic illness at that point. Right. So, uh, you know, the Yale protocol, Dr. Santini, he's basically said, listen, you know, six weeks of ivermectin at zero point so six milligrams per kilogram. So we've given that. Um, six uh, milligrams per kilogram? Yeah, or 0.6 six. milligrams per kilogram. Oh, 0.6, so, right, right. So, so, so that would be someone like me, that would be like 36 milligrams of ivermectin or 48 milligrams. So, um, uh, we've stylized it that way. Patients with macrothrombosis, DVT, and PE, we have found 
that using Eloquist or Pradaxa or Xeralto, the blood clots are not going away, unfortunately. That's because they're resistant to to um to fibrinolysis. Is that because is that because the amyloid protein, correct? Right, because the spike protein is continually generated, it folds and it's amyloidogenic, and it's physically found in the clots. That's what makes them large and rubbery. And this is with COVID and with the vaccine. Yeah. So I had a saw a patient last week, came from Oklahoma. He, he had two rounds of two bouts of COVID, no vaccine. And he had an 18 inch blood clot in his superficial femoral vein. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so no vaccine. So uh, the vaccine just makes things worse. Like today I saw a lady uh, who um, had two uh, shots in 2021, then COVID, then a pulmonary embolism. And so uh, yeah. that's a common scenario. So we're using the anticoagulants now on top of the base spike detox with natokinase, bromelain, mm -hmm. curcumin. Not everyone, though, who gets vaccinated gets these symptoms, though, correct? No, no. And, uh, you know, there's an important paper by um, uh, by Schmeling and colleagues from Denmark. You know, a third of people who take the shots get nothing, zero uh, symptoms at all. And it was on our Substack. Uh, you know, John Leak, who's my writing partner, the Paul Erlinger Institute in in, in uh, Germany was supposed to be doing the quality assurance on the on the um, on the Comirnaty, and it was interesting. They never inspected the vials of the ones that had no side effects. And he's like, "How could this be?" And and John thinks I, I can't confirm this, but he thinks they knew it was essentially a placebo, and that some of the lots had no active RNA in it. They, wh whether it was by design or just happened to be this way, there's no active. There's about two thirds where uh, you know there's some mild side effects, and then there's this final group, this third batch, 4.2 percent of doses. It's through the roof in terms yeah. of side effects. So I think you and I, doctor, we're dealing with that 4.2%. It seems like a lot because so many people took the shots. I've seen enough to be very convinced at this point that uh, there is something going on with the vaccines uh, that's different from other types of vaccines. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's just too too many people um, to just say it's uh, it's a fluke at this point, I think. You're right. Yeah, it's just it's just too many and they just keep coming in. And it sounds like stellate ganglion block is uh, certain, certainly something that can be added to the armamentarium. I get this question all the time that essentially everything is gone except for the sense of taste and smell isn't back. Sure. But um, you mentioned the chest pain that you treat with the colchicine. Um some people describe not just pain there, but they'll describe it as vibrations or like, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, I liken it to more of a neuropathic type sensation. Yeah. It does seem to go away in a large percentage of people after a stellar ganglion block. I don't have a good explanation why. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that um, has been a little puzzling is neuropathies and or radiculopathies. Now, I treat this all day long. I mean, um, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody has a pinched nerve in their neck um, and it's a disc or something pressing on the, on the spinal nerve, um, I would expect them to have uh, ridiculous signs where they'll have numbness, tingling, uh, pain in their, in parts of their upper arm or forearm or even the hand. Mm -hmm. And I would never expect a stellar ganglion block to treat this. Yeah. But they didn't have any issues when we did an MRI. So we look at the MRI and there's nothing going on. There's no 
pinched nerve. Well, can, so, we, can we just can I just clarify? You know, when we order MRIs, uh, the report almost always says something, uh, and right. uh, you know, the patients get the report, and, and and you know, it says mild or moderate or severe. Can you give uh, our lay uh, person audience? just a little bit of a decoding guide on these MRI reports. So we look for, we look for two main things uh, on MRIs in general. Um, MRIs are great for soft tissue. Um, they don't really work well for bone um, or anything um, that, that doesn't have water or fat in it. So uh, it, when I look at um, a cervical MRI in the neck, uh, what I'm looking at is uh, basically three things. One is um, the disc itself, the, um, the matter of the disc, to see mm -hmm. if any part of the disc is uh, leaving its boundaries or if the disc has shrunk um, in height. Uh, the next thing I look for is where the nerve comes out um, and trace it all the way out of the foramen or the newer foramen where, where the nerve um, exits the spinal cord. And that happens on both sides. And the third thing that I look at is um, the spinal canal. I make mm -hmm. sure that there's plenty of room um, all the way around, that uh, there's uh, cerebral spinal fluid and uh, epidural fat um, in, the back of the, in the back of the spine. So um, th the things that, that can cause problems for, for neck in particular, are going to be spinal stenosis or what we call central spinal stenosis. And that's when uh, the spinal canal uh, shrinks. Basically the entire space becomes smaller and that can put pressure uh, both on the spinal nerve and it can also put pressure on the spinal cord itself. And the other major issue is um, foraminal stenosis. That's where the nerve comes out of that keyhole um, that it exits and there there's various soft structures and also bone spurs can um, can grow into the area and make the hole smaller nerves don't like to be touched they're very mm -hmm. sensitive mm -hmm. um, if a nerve is touched or irritated it it swells and that compounds the problem so mm -hmm. now you have less space in a swollen nerve so but these issues have not come up but patients still present with something that I would expect um, somebody who has a disc herniation or a pinched nerve to mm -hmm. have. Now, what's strange and a little unexplained is that the stellar ganglion block makes that go away in a large percentage of people who, who never had any issues with nerves um, and, or, or chest pain before or weird sensations or palpitations. I mean, different people describe it differently. Um, but what I'm describing is pain going down the arm, like you would expect with a pinched nerve. But, but you and say the MRI doesn't match those. The MRI just not The MRI does not match the symptoms. So, so, so then- <laughs> Yeah, some type of neuropathic pain syndrome and you've innovated. And you, you know, these, these ganglion, uh, they do a lot of nerve signal trafficking, right? Ganglions yes. are these central nerve hubs. If people, uh, you know, for those listening who you know are not doctors, this is kind of a doctor conversation, but the, <laughs> the, the ganglion are a, really a complex nerve center, a crossroads, if you will. And they do a lot of processing. 
Yes, and it's like a mini brain. Mm -hmm. it, it it's a, a little bit more than a relay, but less than a brain. Um, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> uh, so it's. Um, but, but one of the things we found is that the the body has a whole series of neurological feedback loops, and and I I studied the feedback loops between the heart and the brain, for instance. You're studying brain, spinal cord, limbs, other uh, organ systems. And by mechanisms of just uh, impeding or temporarily stopping the feedback loop, it has a durable effect long-term, which is the most interesting that's, thing. That's the, that's the interesting part. And there's no steroid in here. Now, normally if we had a pinched nerve in the neck, um, we would do a cervical epidural, similar to the epidural that's used for... Um, for delivery of babies or a C-section that's done in the mm -hmm. lumbar spine, uh, we go into the cervical spine and perform an epidural there with a steroid. Mm -hmm. And um, the the pinching area, which is usually a disc or, or some part of the soft tissue shrinks and the pain goes away and the numbness goes away and the tingling goes away. But here we're not using any steroid. Mm. That's very, so, very uh, So yes, uh, it's... Um, it's an interesting effect. Now, I, I want to, in our remaining time, I want to switch topics a little bit. I know sure. you and I didn't talk about this ahead of time, but I have to ask, since <laughs> so many of my patients ask me, can, can you give us the lay of the land on these injections of the lumbosacral spine for pain and, and give us some guideposts on what patients should look for. When is it likely that injection therapy is going to work? And, and when is it likely that it's not going to work in other approaches? Because, you know, chronic low back pain is seemingly ubiquitous in adult populations. Sure thing. So uh, you probably know that um, low back pain is the number one cause of, you know, um, morbidity and people uh, being out of work and um, cause of uh, lost um, jo job days. Um, so is it linked to something? In other words, um, is there an event uh, where you picked up something heavy or twisted the wrong way, or if it was traumatic, where you involved in a car accident, a fall, um, that's, that's a little bit different than, um, than your average patient. Um, typically you don't start having back pain for no reason typically. So um, there's kind of the, what we call the bread and butter of back pain. And the most common things are going to be um, axial back pain. Mm -hmm. um, so things like facet joints, which are the Z joints that connect mm -hmm. each vertebrae on each side, they can become inflamed. They can develop arthritis just like any other joint in the body. Um, if they're overstretched, over twisted, uh, the connecting ligaments, they can also uh, be a source of pain. So um, in, in that case, the, the pain would be worse, for instance, standing or extending their back more than sitting okay. or bending forward. And um, just like any other arthritis, it'll be worse first thing in the morning and it'll get better throughout the day. And at the end of the night, it'll be worse again. Mm -hmm. So um, that that's the kind of injection uh, we would do for a facet joint, which would target the um, the joint capsule. Or, uh, but let me interrupt you. Is that sure. is that pain pattern one that's kind of well positioned to get injection therapy? Yes. Okay. 
<clears throat> so there is some referral patterns that we know. It can it can be referred to the buttocks and the back of the thighs and sometimes mm -hmm. even the front of the thighs. But mm -hmm. typically that that pain will not go below the knee. In, in the majority of patients. And yes, it's amenable to treatment. You can inject the joint itself, mm -hmm. uh, the joint capsule, or you can do what's called the medial branch block, uh, which blocks the uh, innervation or where, where the pain is transmitted from. Mm -hmm. And if that's successful, you can do a radiofrequency ablation, for instance, as really? an example. Wow. Um, the, the other type of pain uh, would be uh, related to uh, discs or a pinched nerve, and uh, this type. So if it's um, if it's a disc herniation or protrusion, um, one of the things that we will see is worsening with forward bending or flexing or sitting. Mm -hmm. The pain will be worse then, and it will get better uh, when you stand up. And that's because the disc is getting squeezed from the front, and um, oftentimes it'll herniate either to the side or the back. Mm -hmm. And they'll press on one of the nerves, or uh, it will squeeze out some of the material inside the disc called the nucleus pulposus. And while it's a great um, lubricant and cushion, it is horribly irritating to nerves. Oh, okay. So even, even if a little bit gets squeezed out uh, onto a nerve or onto one of the spinal nerves, it will cause neuritis and a lot of pain. And it will cause uh, symptoms such as um, pins and needles, numbness, uh, and um, burning type pain, uh, sometimes electrical type pain, like if you hit your funny elbow, uh, so, uh, hit your um, um, uh, funny bone. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the, um, the next one, which these are the three most common that, that I see, is uh, sacroiliac joint pain. Mm -hmm. Now, this is the joint between the sacrum, uh, which is the lowest part of the spine, uh, just just above the tailbone and mm -hmm. the pelvis. Now, most people don't realize that the pelvis is not like a fixed um, hard structure. It actually moves. It can rock and it does rock when you walk and when you sit, it rocks forward. And this joint doesn't have a lot of movement, about five to 10 degrees max. And um, if it's restricted, uh, for some reason, it's not moving as much as it should. It can cause considerable amount of pain when you stand up. For instance, you're going from a seated position to a standing position, or if you're rolling over in bed or pressing on that joint, the compression. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so all three of these can be um, injected and, uh, okay, and treated. So all, so all three are good uh, patterns. Uh, but how does it work when there's a, an extruded disc and there's some nucleus pulposus material that's outside the disc? Does the body just resorb that over time? or? So we don't know who uh, who falls into the resorption, who doesn't. Some people will have that herniated material there for many, many years. And other people, you, you do an MRI a year or two later and it's gone. Hmm. Um, we still don't have a clear understanding of why some people resorb it and others don't. Um, is, is, is smoking related? Uh, and I recall some data that smoking seems to weaken the annulus fibrosis around the nucleus pulposus. So it makes it smoking. Smoking, makes it the, smoking is linked to low back pain um, and it's linked to destruction of collagen. That's okay. why a lot of times you'll see skin issues um, and kind of people look a little older than their age mm. 
if they've been longtime smoker, uh, because it tends to degrade and break down collagen, not just in in the back, but really everywhere in the body. Also, so that explains, you know, smokers do look a, a bit older. We always call it smoking related facial changes. I think you're right. So it's probably collagen related, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know that tobacco has a ton of toxins in there. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, overall, it's not, it's not something that's good for you in any way. Well, you, you know what? My little brother one time was uh, lifting a heavy box. I think he was moving and he ruptured a disc and he had all this acute pain, this, this kind of pain you described as irritant. He ended up seeing a, a doctor, I think, like yourself. And, um, and as I recall, the scenario is, you know, he did end up getting an injection at some point in time. And the syndrome resolved. He he actually never had back surgery, uh, and he completely resolved. He 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 runs, you know, races and bicycle bicycles and swims, uh, but but he's not permanently damaged by it. And I've always thought that's interesting. Well, ninety percent of the people I see don't require surgery. Wow. Um, I mean, sometimes yeah. I'll have patients come in, and they're looking for a second opinion. Hmm. Uh, they they went to see a surgeon. They may have seen two surgeons and. Um, they're looking to see if there's anything else that could be done uh, well, instead of surgery. What scenarios uh, in your mind, you, you can say this because you're, yeah. you're not a surgeon, you can be an honest broker. What syndromes of the low back really benefit from back surgery? Okay, so really, uh, there's there's really only two main absolutes. Okay. One is spine instability. Spine okay, instability. instability. Okay. So if, if the spine is moving... Uh, if the vertebrae are moving called listhesis or spondylolisthesis, right. um, and there's considerable movement because the muscles are not supporting the spine, right. and basically the, the vertebrae are moving like this. Yep, yep. Um, that would often require a fusion okay. uh, to fuse those two, those two levels together. Mm-hmm. The second is severe spinal stenosis where the spinal cord is being compressed to a point where... Um, it's influencing uh, defecation or urination or okay. voiding. So, um, so bowel or bladder problems, that's something that's a surgical territory. Yes. And then the, the severe spondylolithesis, which you, you see by x-ray and there may be, are there tell, some telltale signs on, on the exam or history for severe spine instability that, that a patient could identify or, or a doctor like me? Well, uh, the really only way to do this is with a, believe it or not, an x-ray. Um, yeah, plain x-ray. We, we do a standing flexion extension x-ray, and we look for what it looks like in flexed and an extended position. And if there's a considerable movement of the vertebrae, mm-hmm. uh, we may recommend surgery earlier. Now, there's other softer indications um, obviously, if there's um, if there's severe weak- weakness or progressive weakness mm-hmm. in any of the limbs, that usually requires a surgical consult. Um, pain is kind of a soft indication. Um, if nothing else is working, it may be considered. I, but, I have to tell uh, you, I'm in my fourth decade of practice. I've had patients of mine. I've had family members of mine, friends go for back surgery after back surgery where the main indication is pain. Right. There's no instability. There's no bowel or bladder. Right. And it doesn't seem like anybody gets better with surgery. Well, that's the problem. Surgery. When 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 the indication is pain, 
and nothing else is going on, there's um, a chance that uh, it will not take care of the pain, number one, and possibly make the pain even worse. Right. Now, um, now in the final minutes we have, um, what's the role of uh, the chiropractor? In, and let's just let's just keep it at low back pain since we ended up okay. at low back pain. What's the role of the chiropractor? I mean, um, role in in terms of uh, treatment or yeah, in terms of just making the patients sure. feel better. Right? I I believe that physical therapy and chiropractic adjustment does work. Okay, um, I've seen it. I've, I've I've experienced it myself. I've I've had patients uh, give me feedback on their experiences. So. Um, I mean, we have some empirical evidence, right? But what's this, when you make, when you make a referral to a chiropractor, what's the ideal patient that you send that really gets the benefit? Cause you seem so organized in, in terms of discrete syndromes. Is there a syndrome that you can say that, wow, this one is really going to do well with a chiropractor? Sure. I, I think disc herniations do well because uh, one of the things okay. that they can do is, is decompression or, or distraction. Mm -hmm. Well, they'll, they'll um, weigh the legs and mm -hmm. uh, it's almost like a rack, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, like the old um, <laughs> uh, torture devices, right. except I don't think we go, I don't think they go that far, mm -hmm. uh, but, but it does help. You can also use something like an inversion table as well, right. but they do help. I mean, you can't argue with the success. They do help. Mm -hmm. And um, sacroiliac joint for sure. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yes. Chiropractors are very good at mobilizing that joint. Um, if it's stuck, if it's mm -hmm. not moving well, um, they have the right technique to, to make it work. Um, but, I'm not... how, about, how about if I have somebody who, let's say they're obese, they just have chronic uh, low back pain. I examine them. They have a limited range of motion. They're stiff. Uh, let's say they have some imaging, a CT or MRI, and it just shows, you know, mild degenerative disc disease, no herniation, no obvious uh, stenosis. Um, you know, there's just nothing impressive. The neurologic exam is normal. I mean, isn't that a good patient to go to a chiropractor? So, most likely in those scenarios, it's going to be uh, soft tissue issues, mm -hmm. uh, musculoskeletal. Right. Um, they'll have muscle atrophy or they'll have uh, loose um, ligaments and, and, and tendons that are supporting the spine, or they'll have poor muscle definition, um, especially around the core, especially mm -hmm. somebody who's obese and is not used to working their core. Um, core is like king for back pain, by the way. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, if you have a good core, um, you can support almost anything, including a disc herniation. The muscles will support your back really, really well. I'm not saying you're not going to have any pain, but you're going to be a lot better off than somebody who doesn't have any core development. So, so, so doing core exercises, abdomen and back. Yes. And flanks, sides. And sides, <laughs> flanks. So that actually is preventive against back pain in the absolutely long and really? also injury and also injury so really? you asked me who would not be a good candidate somebody who's had um, chronic back pain for 10 plus years and there's really no major pathology um it could be central pain syndrome mm -hmm. and not really related to anything to the back it just may be kind of a ramp up phenomenon from their nervous system um 
from some past injury or something and it never really went away and they have chronic pain. In general, um, somebody, the longer they have the, um, the pain issues, the, the less likely it's going to uh, be resolved with any intervention. Yeah, well, for sure. Um, I think we've definitely gotten away from prescribing narcotics. Absolutely. Muscle relaxants. I remember all those days. Um, but I've learned so much yeah. from you. And I think everybody now and again has had some uh, back problems. And I'm, I'm always as a, you know, I'm not a specialist in this area. I'm always trying to find some guidance. And uh, But you've been able to broadly apply your, your skills and your knowledge to um, to some of these overlap post-COVID syndromes, which I think has been very innovative. Well, and I, I treat I, a lot of nerve issues, so it, it sort of made sense. Yeah, I want to thank you for, you know, your innovation, your willingness, because sometimes these people really feel like they, they feel gaslit. You know, no one's listening to them. I know. You, I know. You know I, I mean? hear that every day. I hear that every day. And thank God there's somebody like you and myself that actually take these symptoms yeah. seriously and take them seriously and don't just throw up our hands and say, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what you have. Go see a psychiatrist. Well, How many you know, patients even, have told you that? Worse, I've had some patients go to some tertiary medical centers, some of the biggest name medical centers in DFW and outside DFW, and they get massive numbers of diagnostic tests. I saw several patients today like this. I mean, we're talking MRIs, uh, nerve conduction velocity testing, uh, electromyography, lab testing. I mean, you can't believe it. And just tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of diagnostic tests, but no therapy, right? nothing to actually make them feel better. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> the patients come in, their dossier is so complete. I said, listen, I'm just going to focus on therapy. That's it. Because, you, you know, uh, I, I couldn't order another diagnostic test that's going to be useful. We have to um, you know, use our clinical judgment. I think you've opened my mind to the idea that some of these ganglion blocks and other therapies could could really play a role, especially these kind of cranial, cervical, chest uh, syndrome. So I'm going to definitely keep it in mind. Dr. Um, Bersman, do you have any final words for our audience? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just finding that a lot of these tests are come back normal. Um, chest yeah. x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, uh, they'll do brain MRIs, they'll do chest MRIs and CAT scans. And like you said, the EMGs and nerve conductions back all normal. Normal so, or unrelated. Or I've had patients say, well, I got a nerve conduction and I have carpal tunnel on one side. I said, right. It's unrelated. Well, listen, you and I are in agreement are so much, you're helping patients so much and you've helped me and our audience learn Thank you so much for joining us on Courageous Discourse and America Out Loud Talk Radio. Thank you so much. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. 